Welcome back, everybody, to the Deposit That Podcast. We have five special guests here today, and one of them is my co-host, my little son. So you will see him at some point. You'll hear him crying, but anyway, he's welcome. So I want to welcome Mike and Andy to the show. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. You know, one of the most important things in business, I believe, is has always been relationships, right? And I think people forget how valuable they are. And it's also very hard to maintain a relationship through turmoil. And a lot of people in business in general usually get a bad rap for the industry economics and also, you know, the rules and guidelines that put into place. And often people are in between other people regarding certain rules that don't make sense and apply. So for those of you that don't know, back from 2009 and 2012, a lot of appraisal guidelines and rules and requirements were changed to make it harder for lenders and real estate professionals to do business. So the fact that these gentlemen are sitting here today and I've used them exclusively for over 10 years now is something that I know I'm proud about. And I'm also you know, very honored to have them not only as business service providers, but friends. So what do you guys think about when people come on and they you know, hire you guys and they automatically say, appraisers stink, appraisers suck, you know, no one's reliable. Oh, we dealt with you. You guys take too long. They've never dealt with you before. How do you guys handle that? Number one, I think times have definitely changed. As you mentioned earlier, 2009 to 2012, it was a new age for lenders to use services like our company. They were used to picking up a phone, talking to an appraiser. They had a relationship with that appraiser. Probably would ask the appraiser, I have this property, 1500 Broad Street. You think I can get 200 50000 for it, yes, okay, go ahead and go appraise the property. And if he couldn't, they'd pick up the phone and talk to the next appraiser to see if they could get in the value. And if they could, they would, you know, go hire that person. Do you think that there was anything wrong with a bank or a lender or somebody calling up an appraiser and saying, hey, what do you think? Do you think you can make this value or not? In your opinion, from your experience, do you think it was wrong or do you think people abuse that power? Well, I, I think you raised a good point is that I think it was abused. Uh, you know, I think there's, uh, as a former loan officer myself, now on this side of the fence, there's that instinct to gather the right information lead a client to a predictable outcome. So knowing what sales are out there, gauging the property, gauging where that might end up and being able to determine a proper loan amount, a proper interest rate, those are all good intentions. Where it started to go awry is it kept being pushed and pushed and pushed. Nothing was ever um, enough. Correct. So like like Andy was kind of hinting at You know, people that had incentive for the loan to close, commissioned realtors, commissioned loan officers, even the mortgage company itself, uh, all have incentive to get a deal done. And so when they find themselves in a situation where numbers are tight and they need that little bit of extra bump, they start making phone calls and applying pressure and and driving up numbers where they start to get outside of the realm of of reality and, and you know, it puts banks in a bad position because now they're lending money on an asset that's not really worth what they thought it yeah, was worth. Price. Correct. And so you, you get the situation that you have today with a lot of people being upside down, banks taking heavy losses when they have to recoup the property and know, finding upside down out. means when you owe more than the home is Correct. worth. Correct. Those of you that yep, never heard yep, the terminology. Understood. So that that's really where the lines got blurred and it went into a very dark gray area. 
So the industry as a whole looked at that and said, okay, we need to separate those commissioned incentivized people from being able to apply that level of pressure to an appraiser. I feel like the industry kind of set your company up, set your position up, oh. set your role up to almost to fail though. But here's why I say that, right? I know me personally, part of the reason why I couldn't stand the mortgage business, especially in that time frame, I still did it obviously like torturing myself, but even though we were a direct lender, we were a bank, we had to deal with secondary market investors, right? So we would lend our own money, but we need to make sure that we're able to sell the loan. So we weren't the middleman per se, but because banks were having a hard time selling loans in a secondary market, underwriters were so afraid to pull the trigger on a you know gray area deal that they would have to wait for the secondary market investor to get back to them on their feedback, almost like an attorney opinion letter. So in your guys' cases, you guys are the middleman between the appraiser who's actually valuing the property and the bank that's hiring you as a client, right? Absolutely. So how much does that suck truly? Because at the end of the day, if I, I know I've, I've probably talked to Mike just as much as I've talked to anybody else in the past 10 years, especially during my sure. career from a reliable standpoint. And that's the reason why I have always dealt with and that's a tribute to you. You've had you know a great success in a person, right? Which is hard to find as well, but he's reliable. He'd get back to me and Again, we, we had that working relationship where I knew he would never tell me something just to tell me something. But I've had instances where appraisers have said, Mike, we'll have the report to you, the appraisal report to you tonight or tomorrow by 8 a.m. I then go tell the seller attorney, the buyer attorney, the bank attorney, the listing agent, the buyer, everyone and their mother, the home insurance company. Hey, we're supposed to have the appraisal within 24 hours, we're looking to close in three days. And then the appraisal doesn't come in for two days. It's a Friday. And now the underwriter can't review till Monday. And now that just screwed up the whole system for five days now. So how do you guys feel like you're managing that middleman in, in an age where the middleman is essentially getting cut out? Oh, I, I think one of the most important things with any partnership that you have with one another is to um, under-promise and over-deliver. Okay. So uh, expectations. Expectations, absolutely. Okay. The number one thing, and when you talk to uh, Haley and Mike, some of the other guests that'll be on today, Rachel, my girl, <laughs> it's it's important to set everybody up with the right expectations. I mean, from a standpoint, if you're purchasing a home and you're dealing with a realtor and you're dealing with a lender, it should be the lender and the realtor asking the questions up front of the homeowner and also of the buyer. What are some things that you see in the home that could be fixed before you go out there? So repairs or stuff that may not pass an inspection report. Absolutely. Because what's the worst thing to do is go out and appraise a a property. And then, and then you (laughs) find out, you you know, you have an unpermitted garage or you have, you know, here in New York, you you may have a third unit that's not a legal third unit. Or no certificate of occupancy. Correct. That's going to force the appraiser to have to go back out additional time, additional money is going to have to be spent, and time is money. And if you can fix all those type of things and understand them up front, even the littlest of repairs with a railing on steps, whether it's down to the basement, on a porch, or things of that nature, if you shorten up the time, you make everybody happier. If everybody's on board with what those expectations are, then you can better understand and better grasp when that report's going to come in and possibly the range that it should come so, in. You know, it's funny, right? And that, those are all phenomenal points. I think you hit it on the head where like when I first started in 2007, 2008, it was normal for a bank to take 30 to 90 days to close a deal, regardless of the deal type, regardless of state income, no income. 
hard well, was, money. It was a different time because it was a different time. everything tightened up. It was a, a Quickly, huge shift right? from so super, super I was easy like, to super, super hard. Look, I need to close deals in like five to 10 days before Dodd-Frank, obviously, because the longer it takes, the more people get pissed off. So if I could speed up and consolidate this process, and that's why I've always dealt with you guys, because it was now, it was 24-7, let's get this done, let's be efficient. By getting the appraisal back, if you remember, the average appraiser was taking two weeks at one point, if not more than that, to get a report back because everyone had gotten out of business. Everyone had said there's no deal flow. So at one point, there was a massive shortage of appraisers. Oh, there's still, there's still a massive shortage. Still today. So, so yeah. 11 years ago, when I got into starting this business, there was 118,000 appraisers. Only 2,000 per state. And, and, and some states like Maine, you have 167 appraisers. For the whole state. For the whole state. Correct. Okay. And even some of those people, while they're Appraiser quote unquote appraisers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they appraise livestock. So they're not appraising hoes. Okay. Right. But the point is that, you know, 100, 118, 120,000 people really a decade ago is, is now down under 100,000. The average age of an appraiser these days is approaching 60 years. Yeah. Okay. So you're not and seeing any young guys really good. No, you've appraise. got an aging demographic and a very steep barrier to entry. And they're so, slow when technology took over, so now they're having a, probably a learning curve, you think? Well, that, that happened as well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot more sophistication in the automation of the appraisal process. I remember when I first started, before I started this business, back in 2002, you used to write an appraisal report with pencil and paper, take Polaroids and stick it on, sure. <laughs> stick it on the actual sure. report yep. and, and actually mail it. That was before to, the iPhone. To, to the, <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, things have changed. And, and again, you know, people that are in their fifties and sixties, like myself, we're not the most technical of people. Right. Uh, I'm 32 and I struggle at times with certain technology. Sure. So with, you know, more forms coming in and, uh, you know, the analytical piece, which I'm sure one of the other gentlemen will talk about later in the podcast, it's made it harder for people to stay in the industry from the appraisal standpoint. So now you get into areas where there aren't that many appraisers and you've reduced the, that population of appraisers and now starts to drag out the appraisal process once again. And I look at, you know, three, four years ago, Places like uh, Colorado and Washington and Oregon, it wasn't uncommon to take a month to get an appraisal done. Is we're not due, at that point anymore. We're, is that due to, again, not having enough people to service, or is it due to data not being as easily accessible in that no, area? No, it's, it's level of volume compared to the amount of people. So 10,000 orders, 1,000 guys servicing, for Correct. example, 10 to and 1 so ratio. What happened is they're cherry-picking the easy stuff. Rates are going through the roof. You yeah. have to basically pay double, triple, quadruple to get them to take assignments that might be a little bit tougher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that, that happens, and that was a, a more isolated area. But as the numbers continue to dwindle, we need to bring in you know, fresh blood to, to keep that going. Right. And you look at where population in the country is shifting and things of that nature. Sure. We had a person that we used to deal with quite a bit in the Philadelphia area. And that person went out to Denver because he saw the opportunity there wow. to be able to make additional money because, you know, it was more of a premium. But population is growing greatly out there, and it's nonstop business for him. So 
At what point, because I know you told me recently you scaled your company, you bought a couple other companies, you're looking to acquire more, I'm assuming. At what point did you feel like you had such a good grasp on the business in general where you felt comfortable to not only deploying more capital, doubling, tripling, quadrupling down because of all the changing guidelines and regulations, obviously. So like, at what point did you feel like it was a safe move to say, you know what, we've hit our capacity, now it's time to go out and you know, go vertical? I, I think the most important thing is building a foundation for your company and getting to a place where you believe that you have a customer base that feels as though they can come to anybody within your organization. You mentioned earlier, Rachel, that you deal with, Mike, that you've dealt with for over a decade. You feel comfortable going to them with any type of issue and them being able to handle that for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, And maintain that loyalty, though, because they listen like like anything else. You know, people like to poach, steal, recruit, if you will. How do you personally, as an owner of a company, maintain loyalty where your core people have been there and they're loyal to you and they have your back? Because I believe they truly have your back. I believe that you treat themselves like you would want to be treated. We empower them to be able to make decisions. We give them the opportunity from the standpoint, Mike is on the, on the sales side. Okay. He can go anywhere, whenever in this country to go find business. He knows that he has a team behind him that he's developed internally. And then on top of that, he has the company team behind those people as a last line of defense, so speak, if need be, to utilize those people to help in any way, shape, or form. I I think when you empower people to be able to do what they want, not have to micromanage people, let them come in, do what they want to do. Listen, there's people in my company that happy doing what they want to do every single day. Okay, And you need people like that. They're going to come in every day. You can trust what they're going to be able to do. You know that when they pick up the phone and talk to a client, they're going to talk to them in the right way. They're going to be able to help them in whatever facet that they can. Okay, And they should be able to answer any question that somebody has. And then there's going to be those people that want to grow and look to develop themselves into different roles within the company. And as an owner in a company, you want to be able to allow those people to continue to grow, give them opportunities, and hopefully everybody in the company is soon to be in my position one day or another. To, to go back to your question about, you know, why, why invest and, and go and look for different things, we put ourselves in the marketplace in different parts of the country that we are very strong in. And that's in, that's in the Mid-Atlantic, that's in the Northeast, that's in Florida, okay? And and in California. And we have five offices now in the country, Irvine, California, Overland Park, Kansas, Chaska, Minnesota, our corporate offices in Gibbsboro, North uh, New Jersey. And then we have an office in Greensboro, North Carolina. During the course of the last year, as you mentioned, I, I went out, purchased three other businesses. Uh, we tried to diversify ourselves into different geographical areas and to expand our customer base into different types of customers that we service. And that has allowed us to continue to grow our business. And in less than a year's time, we would have doubled what we do from a production standpoint, but also diversify ourselves in the products that we're offering for our clients and our expertise geographically around the country. Uh, Florida used to be our number one state in terms of doing business. 
approximately 21, 22,000 appraisals that we would do a wow, year. That's a big number. And, and now the number one state that we service is Minnesota. And we'll probably end up doing about 24,000 transactions there this year. Interesting. So again, trying to look at how we can better offer our clients like yourself. Hold to- on, TV timeout. All right, so we're back for that uh, crying interruption. <laughs> so he's going to sit here and have his bottle. So back to scaling the company. You felt like you had the core people. You expanded. You picked your states. You obviously stuck to what you know. Now, the biggest concern in the industry in general in real estate is typically, is technology going to replace people? Do you believe that technology is going to replace a lot of your staff at some point? No. Why is that? So before I got into this industry... I was in banking, but on the operational side, I actually ran one of the largest check processing sites in the country. Oh, wow. Okay, bigger than a Federal Reserve. Wow. And I still remember one of the first days I was at the bank, and one of the people who was training me said to me, this check processing that we're doing now, it's going to go away in a few years. It's going to be replaced by image processing. And during my days in banking, yes, I was involved in image processing, there's more checks now than 35 years later wow, really? than there was when I started. More people. Yeah, more people. But there, And look, image, image processing took some of the things. You can go sit there and deposit mobily on, on your phone. Deposit that. Deposit that, exactly. <laughs> okay. And, and there's going to be automation that's going to help facilitate the overall appraisal process and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And there's some type of alternative valuation products that are now coming into the the realm of possibilities that people can utilize to help, you know, in in getting their loans done and things of that nature. And it'll probably take some time for that to be adapted throughout the course of mainstream America in terms of mortgage processing and things of that nature. But we were just talking yesterday, uh, some of the leaders within our organization, about what we want to do in terms of being able to bring deliverables to the process to make it better from an automated process. And that is, you know, w- wouldn't it be great to have have a mobile app that's set up with all of our appraisers across the country sure. that knows that, hey, Jeff, you're you're sitting in Manhattan right now on Broadway. And I got a person that needs to have their uh, home appraised right now. You want to take care of that right it's now while, Uber, while you're... Uber for appraisals. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. That'd be interesting to bring that to the market. Now, what hurdles do you have as far as compliance go moving forward, do you believe? Or do you think the compliance days are essentially behind those or stagnant at this point? Oh, no. Compliance is the number one thing in the appraisal industry. Right, it keep, right. it, it right. keeps growing. And, and that's uh, allowed us to have the opportunity to be able to look at other organizations that we've kind of brought into the, you know, our organization, so to speak, from the standpoint of acquisition. And that is that the more compliance that's out there, the more states are enacting various laws and things of that nature, the more cost that you have to put into it to back federally transactions and things of that nature. It, it just pushes the little guys out, out, of, out of business. They just can't, they can't compete because all they're doing all day is compliance. They're not, they're not doing anything to help develop the next level of automation, as you mentioned. That's in, what kind in, of mortgage in, banking is today, in right. my opinion. So, you know, from, from that standpoint, you know, 
compliance is the number one thing. And, you know, we take that very seriously. And our organization actually is and was the first organization in the entire entire country to be licensed. Back in 2009, New Mexico was the first of the 50 states to pass AMC legislation, and we are license number 001. Wow. And in fact, August 9th was the deadline for all the states to, here we are 10 years later, and there were still three states that came right up to the line, as well as the District of Columbia. It was New Jersey, Massachusetts, and the District of, uh, of Columbia that came right down to the last week in order to pass legislation to get that approved. So we don't know who was the first to be enacted in all 50 states licensed, but I can tell you our company was one of eight that was licensed by August 9th in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And again, every day, another state's passing another law in terms of what they require in regards to compliance and, and fees and things and of that nature is it, no, it is, right. it is. Yeah. And, and it's just going to get more and more and more. So do you see yourself being positioned to, in a downturn, acquire more oh, valuable companies, if you will, or companies in different markets that you see an opportunity in? Absolutely. And it doesn't have to just be from the appraisal standpoint. And our last acquisition company that's uh, based out of North Carolina, while they to do appraisal work, and they are an AMC. Their primary clients were title companies that were looking for them to provide surveys that they couldn't get through their normal title means. So to be able to, you know, dive into that, they do a lot of commercial. Prior to this, we were only probably 5% commercial business across the country. allows us to take on different opportunities and Again, with that, you, you draw in more customers that maybe you wouldn't have dealt with previously. So, Mike, based on your experience, do you think somebody, I have people that I usually ask you the questions. So people ask me questions and I ask you and Rachel on a group text, right? And you guys always get back to me right away, which is awesome. You guys are more than helpful, even on like the uh, favor side, obviously. Should somebody who inherits a property or should somebody who is thinking about selling a property get a private appraisal before speaking to a realtor, in your opinion? Or is it almost like, why do that? I see that very often. Uh, you know, I have a, uh, a neighbor of mine, good friend, the older gentleman, he's selling his home, moving to, uh, to Texas. And, you know, he had spoken with a realtor who told him, uh, you know, house is worth 460 for a minute, he believed that, but he knows me, he knows what an industry I'm in, and he had reached out. And I'm like, that sounds low. Let me get back to you. And I had pulled some uh, data in the area because we have those resources, went through everything, put together a little three-page report for him. Turns out he could sell the house tomorrow for 525 So, you know, you never know somebody else's motivations. Uh, maybe the realtor wanted to buy it himself, or maybe he knew an investor or whatever. But a lot of people that don't have a friend like me or a friend like you that's in the industry that knows the real deal. Correct. Getting an appraisal uh, is that way to kind of know that you're getting an unbiased opinion. You're the one who hired that person. You're the one who's paying that person. And you're the one that's saying, hey, I need to know what my house is worth. Um, And they're going to give you that. And they have no outside incentive to give you anything but the truth. Now, people often mix up the definition of an appraisal, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like this house is worth six seventy. Well, 
it's not because an appraisal is defined to my knowledge as an opinion of value. So when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, you underappraised this or hey, you overappraised this, what's usually your rebuttal other than providing, you know, supporting documentation? How do you get between that gray area of, hey, I think it's worth five fifty, hey, I think it's worth five seventy? Well, I, I think the person coming back to you is probably going to come back to you saying they underappraised your house versus overappraised it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what we always say. Okay, you you know, the house came in at 550, you think it's worth 575 or 580. Well, why? Show me the evidence that supports that finding. Because people think, oh, a house sold in my development for this, my house has to be worth that. Okay. I live in a development that has 29 homes. Okay. Some of those homes back up to water. Some back up to an apartment complex outside of that. Okay. The two houses as you enter into the development are on a double yellow line street. Okay. They all have. So there's valuation differences between what your house backs up against, whether on the streets. Your average person listening probably doesn't know that. Oh, absolutely. They don't know that. So there are value. Complex, if you will, okay. based on and, laws, and, and unless you live in a townhome community where pretty much every home is the same, and even in that case, you know, if you're in the middle of a cluster of four homes, okay, if you're in the middle versus the guy that's on the exterior, yeah. you know, semi-attached, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's a difference there. It could be it's two, three thousand dollars. People think that well, if my neighbor sold for six hundred, then I I should be six hundred or six hundred five. <laughs> right, right. So realtors think that way as well. Okay. I just had one this past week where person, I, I believe they were looking for a sales price of 590. The home came in at 550 and they wanted to know why they couldn't get 590. And, and the first sale that the appraiser used was the exact same home in terms of square footage, bed and bath count was actually on the, on the same street. Okay. That home sold for five seventy, okay. And 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 yes, they backed up the water, and these people didn't back up the water. They the subject had an enclosed patio, but the sale that was utilized that was higher had a a patio was three times the size. And obviously, looking out on the water versus looking at somebody else's house behind them plays a big part of it. And then another sale sold for five eighty five. So they argued, well, my house is just like that house. Not no, really. your yeah. your house isn't just like that house because if you look at your kitchen and you look at your bathroom, they're thirty years old. You can see from the tiling, you can see from the cabinetry and things of that nature. And you go look at these, you know, this particular home online is granite countertops in in the bathrooms, you know, marble tile in sure. the bathroom. Substantial upgrades. You're not going to get dollar for dollar on what you paid for it, but you have to say that a house that sold for five hundred eighty-five thousand, and it's the same square footage, and it's in the same development, and it backs up to the same thing, has to be worth more. It's not built-in condition when you know you came in thirty years ago, Right. right? So there was the argument right there, and then you know they went back to their real estate agent. The real estate agent came back with a couple of what you know they thought were comparable sales and like the problem is they're not sales they're listings 
Okay. Yeah, just because you list and, the price, and, you list at two million. Right. I can list my it. house for ten million. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean that somebody's <laughs> going to buy it. Someone so, might. So until somebody buys that, that'll be the next driving factor. That's right. the most recent sale in the development. Then you can go back out. You can reappraise the house because when you appraise the house for the first time, it's the effective date. It's those sales that were available sure. at the time I inspected your house develops your value. So let me ask you this question. And we're not obviously in, at this point of the market, but I think it's important to touch on since we just went through the past five to seven years of this people front running value. So, Hey, I bought this house, this condo today in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for 500,000. Now there's another one for 525, 550, 575. How do people typically purchase properties, right? Where supply and demand comes in and People are buying properties higher than the current valuation, and they're basically paying over ask or getting into bidding wars. How do you guys handle that when you know for a fact someone's overpaying for the property and the appraised value doesn't come in? I think we've seen that a lot in a lot of markets. Um, not so much necessarily today, but um, yeah, as, as things expand and the economy's hot and some markets appreciate quickly. Um, I, I remember Vegas got really hurt through the 0708 crash and things right. went really bottomed out yep. and then there was this resurgence and and the problem a lot of appraisers have because a house might be worth what they're buying it for but backing it up with the sales to your point it becomes the challenge mm-hmm. so that house a week ago would have sold for 500 now it's going in for 525 there's this rapid appreciation in the area and a lot of times the buyers have to come to the table with that cash. Right. You know, appraisers can use time adjustments to some degree. But to, not a week. <laughs> but the problem is, is that the lenders now, their hands are tied because just as you talked about a while ago, that loan is only as good as its ability to be sold sure. to, to secondary yeah, market. The Correct. So even if the lender can look at that and say, yep, this is a very high rate of appreciation. We have a time adjustment. This house is selling for 525, even though no other house is sold for more than 500. It all might make sense, but it's not going to work on paper. And so a lot of the time it's those cash buyers that are coming in and continue to push the market. You're kind of chasing your tail. Sure. Um, but those are really isolated areas where, where it's more of a runaway train. And right now it's few and far between. And that, yeah, that's not the case at the moment. But I mean, a few years ago we did see it and, you know, I, I, I could always, judge what's going on by the phone calls I get. And that was for a period of time. That was the Mike, phone call I got. Priest. Correct, Mike correct. Priest. And every time you look at it, you <laughs> see. you heard that? Yeah. And when you're already using the highest sales, where do you go? At periods of time, that does happen. And, and it's tough because the appraisers are, are bound by what they can prove and the lenders are bound by what they can prove. And, and so. And so now it becomes speculation as to, okay, well, there is this rapid appreciation but how do I back it up? Interesting. So I know you two gentlemen brought two other gentlemen here today. Mm-hmm. You want to sure. give a little intro of who they are, what their experience is, and what we can expect from them sure. as sure. far as information goes? Sure. So uh, joining us shortly will be Haley Freeman. Haley is our chief valuation officer. Uh, what does for, that entail? Uh, I'll let you t- let him tell you what that is. I don't want to. S- I want to speak for him. He's- Do you know, or he knows only. <laughs> you just gave the fancy he tells title. Me, but, uh, uh, Haley is a certified uh, appraiser out of California. Has been in the industry for forty years. Forty. Forty. He looks like he's forty-two. How did that happen? Uh, we started young. <laughs> California. CBD. Yeah. Also with us today is Mike Moore. 
Mike is our Director of Sales and Marketing for Nationwide Property and Appraisal Services. Mike comes to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Mike's been in the in the industry for uh, two decades now, kind of running the pilot programs for us right now in terms of uh, alternative valuation. And we talked earlier today about, you know, what are going to be some of the changes and how we look to, you know, conquer those going forward. Automation and technology. Yes. Okay. And, you know, trying to shorten the time period it takes to appraise a house from when we get the order to when it's delivered to the lender. And, you know, there's some things that are out there today that uh, we are doing for some of our lenders to do that. And, you know, that's probably going to be the way of the future, whether it's, you know, next year or 10 years from now. You know, just like imaging was in in terms of check processing, it's going to be a form of valuation, how well it's received in the in the industry and how it's, you know, backed by the states. There's already some pushback by some states in the country that uh, they don't believe that that's well, the proper form of valuation. They don't understand it. But I'll let you know Mike talk about that specifically when he uh, joins us. So are you guys looking to take on new clients as well, as far as mortgage companies, banks, and everything? You guys are actively searching. Absolutely. To- Absolutely. I mean, we've in the in the past year have gone from performing a hundred thousand appraisals a year to. Now we're on pace to do about 225,000 appraisals this big year. Big jump. It's got chills. It's a big jump. Oh, it's a huge oh, jump. Oh, man. Okay. Mike's and still maintaining his hair, though. What's the secret? <laughs> I don't understand. Double the business usually means like double the hair loss. But um, no, I mean, it, there's always people that we can help and new clients that, you know, we'd love to be able to assist in what their needs are, no matter how small or how large they are. Again, it's it's when your company this size... Okay, it's more about developing the relationships and the partnerships with people than it is about, oh, I need X amount of orders to 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 stay in business and things of that nature where, you know, we've always developed and grown our business in developing the relationships and partnerships with people that we come in, you know, touch with. And, you know, Jeff, you're a a part of that, as you mentioned, you know, we've 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 been. Partners in this for over a decade now. It's crazy to think we, about it. We, think we, about it. How oh, I know. And you know, we've yeah. de- we've developed a great friendship yeah. over the course of that. Well, you time. and I didn't start off too hard, if you remember. Right? There's sometimes that Mike had to throw on the referee shirt, and I'm like, listen, you better keep him out of North Jersey because if he comes up here, he's not going to get out. He's going to be swimming <laughs> in the Hudson River. And That's, you're probably like, if he comes out to Philly, yeah. then we're going to take him into the real Philly, and he's never going to come back to Jersey. So I guess that's just me because H- Haley will talk about that <laughs> as well. Before Haley was uh, part of our family. Yeah. I used to work with Haley at a couple different lenders that he was at. And, you know, just like uh, when we first touched base, it, w- it wasn't the uh, smoothest thing, you know, from, from when we first got started. Obviously, you had a relationship with Mike and, sure. uh, you know, Haley had a relationship with other people within our organization and we didn't hit it off too well at, at the beginning. And, you know, here we, here we are six, seven years later. Friends. And, and we actually, you and I actually just met, if you don't remember. Oh, months I know. Ago. I, I know. So, Nine years of emailing, hate yeah, back and forth. You know, again, look. <laughs> Emotion you, flying high. <laughs> I always, I always say, look, you can't please everybody. Right. Okay. I love to please everybody, but, but you can't. Okay. This is, this is a human business. Yep. Okay. And there's people that are going to interact very well. 
whether it's via email, whether it's over the phone, whether it's face to face on, you know, FaceTime or what have you. And, you know, here we are a decade knowing and doing business with each other. And I just, just I just met you a month ago. There's something to say about that. So I think people, I think real business people are always able after the dust settles to put the crap, bullshit, emotions aside, shake hands like gentlemen if both people are aligned and where they're looking to go, right? Like, I never didn't like you as a person. We just had conflicts over me wanting speed. You probably dealing with thousands of other frustrated individuals and emotions got hot, but we never took it to that point where there was a point of no return. And obviously, Mike was instrumental in keeping us married, if you will. But right. and then, and something, and, something to be spoken about, your service and yeah. our loyalty. And well, again, that's that's part of having a family that, you know, right now extends over 100 people within yeah. my organization. There's people that are going to get along with one another like that. And then there's people that, look, no matter what I say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I got to find the right person to deal with each person that we have a relationship with, that they have a go-to person within our organization that they trust and love, okay, and feel as though they're the best thing since sliced bread, okay? And that's that's part of my role is to find that person in my organization to help you along with whatever struggles you may have, both for yourself and for your clients. And I I think one of the the main reasons we've been so successful over the past 10 years is being able to, you know, everybody's great when everything's going great. Uh, It's when there's a problem and emotions get hot and, and situations get complex. You know, we've been very good at being proactive about that. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but at the very least we've thrown all our cards on the table and done our best job. Correct. (laughs) And so Guys like yourself have picked up on that. And, you know, I think that's what's gotten us here. And so when times get tough, it's whether or not you can respond and, and jump on it and deal with those problems. Because, like I said, everyone's great when everything goes smooth. But when things get hairy, it's the guys that can step up and fix the problems. Today, we obviously, we have two sets of guests on one show, which is awesome. We usually leave the listeners with one thing to deposit. So deposit, that really means what's your number one advice for today for a listener to deposit to their brain that they can either implement psychologically or directly implement into your business. I think you just gave one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when tough times come, you have to deliver and execute and hunker down and not mm-hmm. disappear. So, Andy, what, what would your number one piece of advice to deposit today into someone's brain is from a business standpoint or a personal standpoint? I'll kind of talk on two things, if you don't mind. Yeah. One about your house. Know your house inside and out. Know what the situations are that if you were to go sell your house today, what would need to be repaired? Because you want to take care of those type of things before you go and list the property. Okay. It might cause you to invest $5,000 to fix some things up that if you didn't, when you go and have your home valued, you'd probably lose $25,000. So it's worth that investment to do those little things, the littlest things as possible. Okay. Remember, you're not getting dollar for dollar back. So it's not like, you know, go build a pool in your backyard (laughs) for 15,000. You're going to get that when When you sell sell the property. The important thing I think in, in business, okay, is being able to Entrust the people that you work with. Is that entrusting them blindly or making them earn that trust? I think you have to 
allow people to bring what they can to the table. Okay. And you have to be open to the fact that you don't know everything. I always thought I knew everything. Until okay. 30. And then you were like, oh, <laughs> until 30. <laughs> I, uh, but I, you know, again, there's a reason why I have a hundred plus people in my organization. Okay. That is because I can't do everything. No matter awesome. how much awesome. I would want to do everything, I can't do everything. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there's people that I may not hit it off with the first time I meet them or the first time I interact with them. I have to be smart enough to be able to be able to move that person to someone in my organization that's going to want to make them feel like I can come here time and time again. I'm going to be treated like a human being. I'm going to be respected as an individual. When I have a situation, you're going to listen to what I have to say, and you're going to find a way to solve my problem. Okay. As Mike mentioned, we're going to do everything in our power to get a deal done for you. Okay. And if we have to go out and get some supporting information that costs us money to do to back up maybe what an appraiser has already developed for you in terms of evaluation, we're going to do that. We're going to go out and we're going to look at other people's opinions and ask of them what they may see. So go the extra yard. And we'll go the extra yard. And we're not going to go and say, hey, Jeff, hey, I need $100 for (laughs) to go do that because that's not what it's about. Okay, It's about being part of the family, being part of the relationship. And I would want to do that for anybody in my family to the point where, hey, look, we've tried every possible option for you, okay, and thrown resources at it. And look, sometimes you don't win. And you got to accept that. You got to accept that, hey, I've done everything humanly possible to help you get to the finish line. And I think knowing that confidently in a service provider is invaluable. And I can tell you that of the thousand plus deals that I've closed, probably 20% of my deals we had to work closely on call in favors for either speed, getting it done quicker, where our clients had to pay expedited fees, or hey, look, Bank of America underappraises property, in my opinion, by thirty, forty thousand dollars. Here's the deal. Here's the contract. You know, look, I believe this appraisal is not right, and you guys actually went to bat, and we brought the deal in and closed it. So I can't thank you guys enough for not only making my career more successful, but really, guys, having you guys be my my backstop. And I think any loan officer, or mortgage bank listening to this, you know, if you don't have a good appraisal management company and you don't have a relationship with them, get one. You know, reach out to these guys and really. You know, former relationship because at the end of the day, you know, someone that you've known for ten years, in my opinion, is going to go to bat for you more often, more likely than somebody you just met off the street that's telling you how great they are. So, I truly appreciate you guys, friendship, business wise, service provider wise, and look forward to another, you know, ten twenty years of doing more business. Thank you very much. Now we're going to TV timeout, and we'll have the two smarter gentlemen, not better looking, <laughs> smarter, come on over and talk. <laughs> So welcome back for halftime. We had to give my son an empty bottle to pretend like he's drinking. But thank you guys for coming out. I know you came from California and Tennessee. So we appreciate you guys having you out here in the Big Apple. So start off by telling us really what you see as far as people making the biggest mistakes, whether it's a consumer, homeowner, or a realtor when, you know, giving you an estimated valuation of the property. Interestingly enough, most homeowners think their houses are worth more than they tend to be. So... 
Realtors, when they go out and try and price a house, will lots of times have to, based on the borrower's um, opinion of value. Problem is, as you guys talked about a little bit earlier, is you have to have sales in the market that will support that. So when borrowers typically think their houses are worth, let's say, $100,000 and the average home is selling at eighty, we have a pool. The pool's not worth much. Unfortunately, you lose that value gain and you end up at $82,000 or something close to that. If there's no sale in the neighborhood to support that, we have a problem. Secondary market scores all appraisals from a technical standpoint. So when when it's uploaded and delivered to the lender or when the lender uploads it to Fannie, it gets risk score. When the risk score is higher than 2.5, the lender is required to do diligence reviews on these. Lots of times that indicates the value is not supported by the data that the agencies have stripped off appraisals over several years. How do you make that more of an education to a consumer? Because your average consumer is always going to want more. It's just human nature for anything compared to what reality is. What's been your experience improving that? Interestingly enough, a lot of borrowers now are somewhat tech savvy and will go on to websites like Zillow. I hate Zillow. Redfin. And Redfin's actually not bad. Zillow, they have what they do have is a lot of sales data on there. Don't get stuck in the value they give you because... Can you say that one more time? As don't don't get stuck don't on the Zestimate, yeah. as they call it. It's so I wrote a book called The Mortgage Playbook for Millennials. I have a whole chapter dedicated to fuck Zillow. It literally says fuck Zillow, right? And I made sure it's tank tops said fuck Zillow. Now, I also bought Zillow stock the first day it became available on the <laughs> stock exchange. I thought, based on their original business plan, it would really help the industry. But it just proved to not help the industry and actually hurt business and transactions. Well, there almost needs to be a disclaimer about it, right? It's like too and there much was none for a long time. Yeah. No, yeah, like and people love having all this data, but the fact is that they don't know what to do with it. And especially when like you pull up the page and there's this big giant number, and that's supposed to be the number that you trust and you know rely upon. But the we, fact is, you got to dig into the data a lot of times. We don't know their algorithm to support this number. Mm-hmm. An appraisal has to be based on factual data. In a certain time frame as well, right? Within a certain time frame. Can't say I bought the house in 1980, it's worth, you know, it's irrelevant. Yeah, unless that was the last sale. (laughs) And even then. Right. Right. As we know, Zillow likes to have their graphs and diagrams and information. So being in the business 40 years, you kind of rewrote the rules again. But I'm assuming you, you started off when you were writing the rules the first time. So how have you adjusted to the game changing? It's almost like what was pass interference is no longer pass interference. And then there's a new rule that comes in that you can't touch the quarterback. So how do you personally adapt to that? It's all about change. Are you comfortable with change? You have to be if you're going to survive in this industry, any part of this industry, because it's evolving constantly. When I started out, as example, appraisals were done on a three by five card. There was no license. There was no exhibits. Like a three by five index card. Like an index card, cut into fours. And write down whatever your lucky numbers Basically, are. Basically, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It was pretty basic. Wow. Then regulations really didn't come into play until 1992. Well, in the early, in late 80s, early 90s, after the savings loan collapse. In 88, I think that was right. Yeah, and so. That's when licensing first came in. Uh, I remember when Fannie came out with the firm first appraisal form, the 1004 sure, form. Sure. They're working on their third version, but the second version is the current version we all see. As Andy said earlier, we, then we went to Polaroid photos. First they were black and white, then color, stapled onto the report. 
33 millimeters involved. We run out, do the appraisal, drop off the film at the one-hour photo mat, and come back, tape them on, and mail the reports Crazy. out when they're typed. How long did it take to do appraisals back then? In some ways it was faster. some ways it was... Um, so less Big Brother, but less, less technology. A lot less rules. Yeah, we would have to get our comp data individually. It would be a lot more expensive from different sources. Now, of course, we all belong to MLS. We use the same information realtors use, which is... The way it should be. And they were never access to everything. They were never scrutinized to the level that they are today as well, right? I mean, not yeah. even close. Um, well, because, is that because most of the time there were real no losses incurred by the lender? So, look, I look at it as no one cares about anything until someone loses money or gets yeah. hurt, right? So, because the market really was, you know, shaking stagnantly, going up, pulsating, staking stagnantly, keep going up, and rates were going from 18 to 15 to 14 to 12 to 9 to 8 in a day, right? right. Those swings were so massive that people really weren't holding the loans long enough, in my opinion, in order to have losses six, seven, eight, nine years down the road until we experienced those losses. And now people are like, appraiser's fault. <laughs> right. Right. We always laugh how good it is when things are going up. Right. Like Mike how, said earlier. Yeah. It's easy. how bad it is when not. So how do you gentlemen work together? I mean, very closely, right? So um, I'm the director of sales. So my sales team works with Haley frequently when they have valuation questions that come from their clients. Uh, but Haley and I specifically have been partnering up on uh, really kind of changing the game with our alternative valuation products. They gave a little bit of a lead into that earlier, and I'll try to give a little bit of a summary as far as what's happening in the industry there. So what it really boils down to is like, yes, there's data everywhere and everybody wants to use this data, but there's also efficiencies that we're seeing kind of like what Andy was talking about with having the right people in the right place. Mm -hmm. So what people are seeing is that appraisers are best at appraising properties, giving their opinion of value. Do you necessarily need them out there inspecting and measuring a house? No, not really. Somebody else can take those pictures. Somebody else can measure the property. They can do those things. So you put the appraiser at their desk working on the valuation primarily. So and having like a runner go in, hey, eight by eight, yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Well, yeah, like, like, let's face it, that's what used to happen with trainees, right? right. Like, but There's trainees, no more trainees. Well, they're they're harder to, to use for sure. So with the alternative valuation space, there's a market now to where you can use a licensed inspector or an insurance inspector or in some case a real estate agent, someone to go out and do that inspection. They can hand that inspection report to an appraiser by data, not physically, electronically. Sure. And then the appraiser just works on valuing the property. So, so you it get these things up very quickly. It, it should, like. yeah. It should at least. Um, Integrity of data, though, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and of course, you know, the states, some of them are a little less comfortable with that. Right. Some of them are just right. trying to protect Definition appraisers. Definition of the expert. Yeah. And who, who, if the appraisers... Is he actually what, doing what, the work or is he just signing act, off on it? What's the act of the appraisal right. or the right. process? Well, I mean, remember from, to make the correlation into banking, where I've only known since I was 20 in 2007, is the old story was, hey, the underwriter was just told by the bank, mortgage bank CEO present, sign off on this loan, don't look at it. And then when... You know, all the indemnifications came back, which you remember from FHA and HUD and everybody. It was the underwriter was like, well, he just told me to sign it. But then, well, wait, so you're admitting you signed it and didn't look at it, mm -hmm. you know, but then that puts the person in the desperation position of if I don't do this, I might not have a job. Yeah. If I do do this, the owner is responsible, not me. But people forgot that, like, their name was on the document. Right. So. I'm sure since you've been around 40 years, you've been offered bribes. I've been, I'm sure your guys have been offered bribes. I'm sure many people have called up and said, <laughs> hey, I need this valuation. 
And he clearly hasn't taken so, any because he's still working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sleeps like a baby at night. But <laughs> listen, that's unfortunately the desperation of the nature of the industries we're you know, reciprocally in. How do you prevent the desperation from controlling the outcome? Because I know appraisers personally, my first started in 07, 08, they were like, look, I'll get you whatever value you need. Just I need the work. I need the work. I need the work. And I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I only have a couple of deals and you're not getting them. And if you lead with that, you're, I don't even want to deal with you. So how do you prevent that? There's different ways. Like I said earlier, the, the agencies run their appraisals through a, yeah, a system, system that also score them. We review all of our appraisals to make sure that at least the value that's concluded is supported by the data right. and for QC purposes based on our clients' needs. So we we have multiple ways to to look at reports. Sometimes it comes back from the lender if if it's not an obvious situation. Sometimes it's caught later, um, unfortunately, because some people do scrupulous things that you just don't find out till later in the loan process. But our job, we review every report for quality and consistency to meet the lender requirements. So most of that is found up front. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people unfortunately misunderstand about quality control is like it's there not only to protect you as the loan officer and the loan and everything else, sure. but we're trying to do that on the front end while we've got the appraiser engaged, right? Because right? a lot of times we send in the report, it doesn't go through underwriting for another week, and then the appraiser's already moved on, right? Not about, or on vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the problem. Yeah, so to, to get that change done at that point in the game well, takes a lot longer. Nice. So like, what time did you wake up? Two Tuesdays ago. Like, right. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's interesting? So I feel like from a, a scalability standpoint, people can really get in the industry right now because there's an opening as far as the age gap goes, right? So what is your guys' proactive approach to bringing in younger trainees, right? To really get them to understand the business and scale the younger generations. And you could be that mentor to somebody. Well, we, we have to try to champion that that concept, first of all, right. because as, as Haley mentioned earlier, there's not a lot, of, a lot of lenders who allow trainees to be used. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Mike uh, mentioned earlier as well that the, the bar... Uh, has been consistently raised as far as the educational requirements to get in there, sure. the number of hours of experience you need to get into there. Which, is, which I agree with. To, to be a certified appraiser, mm-hmm. you basically have to put in the same amount of time as it would be to be a lawyer gotcha. to get a JD. Years. So like bachelor's degree, three years practice. Yeah, and the tickets work. are much smaller on the appraiser side yeah, than it is, and more work than... Oh, yeah. yeah Student loans might be less. But <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, you're right. It's, but, it's, they made it hard, but they've eased it up some. Mm-hmm. This last year for the lower level license, but still, it's a work in progress. Like everything, they pass a law. Then when things aren't working the way they want, they kind of go extreme, which they did with educational requirements a few years ago. And now they're kind of backing off a little bit. The other barrier is it used to be any uh, certified appraiser could hire three, four, five trainees. They changed the rules to where you can only have two. And they have to be basically registered under you. So you're responsible for them. You are anyways. Anytime you sign as a certified appraiser on a trainee, you're responsible for everything in the report. However, this takes an extra step. So, What do you do in the event where, I'm going to give an example, like North Jersey right now, right? People are like, oh, my house is worth $2.9 and you wind up selling it for $1.8 let's just say, right? Now, the house next door, they're like, look, the house was a fire sale at 1.8. Like, the people just went through a divorce. They wanted to get out, right? It's really worth 2-2, two, two, or it's really worth 
to four. Like you know for a fact it was undersold. How do you as an appraiser look at that and justify bringing a deal in 15 to 20% higher based on the current comp that supports one eight? How do you do that? One comp doesn't make a market. Right. right. However, if there's two or three other houses in that price range, sure. that's the market. Right. So that's what we have to. So you definitely do bracket it and you definitely give your professional opinion on look, there's no way this one eight was realistic. It was clearly below market. So well, that's market. where it comes down to yeah. being an arm's length or non arm's length. Yeah, yeah five sales at a higher amount, right. one at a low amount, they've all sold within six months. Now, how much weight do you put on? I know I'm a local guy, meaning like I believe real estate and lending is local, right? Now, look, anyone can buck my trend, the rule, exception to the rule where you're like, yeah, you get a mortgage, you get a mortgage, you qualify, you don't. But I had one person call me up one time. I think it was a Bank of America loan officer, knucklehead in like 2011. And I wound up saving a million dollar deal in Harlem. The lady from Bank of America was in like Minnesota. Her appraiser was from like, I'm giving an example, Canada, right, yeah. from America. You know what she said to me? There's no way there's a property in Harlem, New York worth a million dollars. I go, well, clearly you haven't been to Harlem in the past 30 years. Right. Because here's a comp for $2 million. Right. How much weight do you put on a local expert appraiser or evaluationist? They should be local. Should yeah. be. But they're, what's they're required local? to be geocompetent. So geographically competent, I get you. Yeah, I get you. Uh, access to the data that the local um, market would, the local realtors, the local market has. They have to know the markets. And if they don't, they have to get the competency to do it before they accept the assignment. We assign the closest appraiser we could find. Basically, quality and distance is our is our. That's your model. Yeah, yeah, but the market factors we talked about earlier, right? With uh, fewer appraisers being available than ever before, right. with people wanting faster and cheaper, <laughs> and some AMCs, unfortunately, they will sacrifice integrity and quality over that. They'll gotta do exact deals. Yeah, you got to get it done. They'll just broadcast orders out to all the appraisers. That's who bites first and yeah, fastest, cheapest, but. This is where, again, when I go to the alternative valuation products out there, as appraisers start to see these new products mm-hmm. out there and this new methodology of, of how to st- uh, structure their business, mm-hmm. like you can do so much more work locally and never get off uh, up off the couch or out of your desk, sure. right? And Rather I think, than taking on deals somewhere far away. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. And you know, who wants to go out drive and take pictures of comps? No one. Or revision. Oh. Like every time there's a revision, like get up off the, you know. For that reason, I think initially you're seeing probably more of that where people are appraising properties from further away. But I think as the people embrace these new products, it's going to kind of fix that issue for us. Where do you see the biggest hurdle right now in today's current economic environment from an appraisal standpoint? I think it's with the rising values. You do? Right. Yeah. Well, it's because it's a backwards looking process, right? So again, I think Mike and Andy touched on this earlier. What was it worth two weeks ago? Yeah, well, the last sale sale is always looking in the past. You can't talk about what's in the future. You can make upward adjustments, but those get very heavily scrutinized by underwriters. It's because they were burned so bad or it was a knee-jerk reaction from 10 years ago that they still can't understand that. I mean, listen, I respect it because, look, at the end of the day, you have to protect the lender. The lender has the most to lose. They're lending the largest piece of the transaction, right? So I get all that, but there's also common sense where, you know, and obviously common sense doesn't apply to our industry by any means, right? <laughs> if it did, you know, we wouldn't be on the podcast educating people today. I, w- I would have much more hair by 32. Um, I'd probably have two more kids because I wouldn't be so stressed out for the past eight years. But 
if you have a vision, if you have a foresight of what's going on in a market, you strictly apply the rules of supply and demand. There's no way somebody can't tell me that this house sold for 500000 today and there's only one other house on the market that they shouldn't be entitled to a higher price. And you can use eBay as an example. eBay supply and demand, the more rare of an item you sell, the more the price could potentially go up. So at what point does the market say, we understand supply and demand? We know based on today's market trends, data, inflation, census, that this house is actually worth. It's going to set the record sale and we're going to be able to support that valuation. It gets dicey, but the appraiser is supposed to analyze and ever report market conditions. And when he does that... Booming. He, <laughs> right. right, right yeah. and, and he's supposed to take all those factors into consideration, supply and demand. Is it going through a trend of increasing values? Mm-hmm. You know, And that, it can be the opposite, too, is demand exceeds supply. One thing you have to keep in mind is cost doesn't always equal value. Ever. Ever. <laughs> and so that's... And we have emotional parties, a seller and a buyer. Sure. Who have no knowledge. Who who have limited limited knowledge. knowledge. You know, know this house is the one they want as a buyer. Knows the seller knows that they want X amount of dollars. And they meet in the mines. But yet the appraiser can't find that out. Well, people have to consider the fact, like, the way the appraiser is looking at it, the way the bank is looking at it is not that you agree to the sale price. If you die tomorrow and they have to go sell this property. What's our loss? Potential loss. Or, yeah, what can I get a second person to pay for this property? And if they can't validate that. The, Not happening, especially yeah. at max FHA financing. Right. <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, once you move in, it's like a car. Like you're already automatically at a loss once you hire a realtor. Yeah, you're putting three and a half percent down, but you're hiring a realtor for five percent. You die tomorrow, you're negative one point five off the top. Yep. So you know what always intrigued me about appraisals in general when I really got into commercial lending and investment lending, you know, advisory. Residential does not speak to commercial at all, right? I've had. A, I'll give you an example. There's a three. There's a three family property. Compare apples to apples, right? A three-family. Oh, based on comps, this house is worth five hundred and fifty thousand. Well, based on my cash flow, it's worth three forty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, we analyze cash flow on investment commercial appraisals, and we analyze most recent sales, not factoring in rent to any capacity to a, a obviously evaluation standpoint. Do you think there will ever be a hybrid that's kind of the norm to the market? I know you have the sales approach and the cost approach and all that and- income approach, but at what point do residential lenders smarten up and say, this price is overinflated? Because if we need to sell this house, an investor may buy it and they'll only pay X price for it. I think that has a lot to do with the loan programs, you know, because right now the agencies... They have will, no idea. Yeah. No and, idea. And, and it's just still on the right, 1982. Sort of, with a lot more rules right. <laughs> now after right. the payload. But yeah, I mean, that's it. They, they just move on. You get the value... They they have reps and warrants on the value from Fannie. Move it through. So they really don't care about I the I don't exit. think they no. I look at it as you know. Look, I always say residential's emotional, commercial investments, business, black and white versus tons of gray or red, if you will. Because people see red when they get emotional. Do you think it'd be beneficial to lenders to underwrite a deal from an investment standpoint rather than just a well, valuation they do that standpoint. to some degree, like in the hard money space. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I'm using so, that space. Yeah. So I think there is some of that and that's where they do have more freedom to underwrite the way they sure. want to, not necessarily the way the GSEs tell them sure. to. But truthfully, it's like underwriting follows the market and what's going on with it. And I don't think until there's a significant population of people doing real estate investing um, on the residential side, will the standards really change? Because I, right mean, now, I, I can tell you for a fact, 
if I've done six or 700 FHA deals in my career, I'm multifamilies alone in New York City, Northern New Jersey marketplace, maybe one or two past my cash flow analysis. And that's scary. To me, that's scary, especially in, a, in an environment where rates are locked in for a 30-year period under 5%. Because, you know, I always look at it as, well, on a commercial mortgage, well, what if rates adjust and now your rate goes up five points or whatever the yeah. case might be? If these people ever have to refinance or someone has to then go and sell two, three, four, five years down the road, yeah, they might sell for $500,000 more. But that new buyer is taking on what could be a potentially negative cash flow. If if the lenders had to take into account the costs, if they have to take back the property on sure. a on a mortgage, sure. it would cause a lot less mortgages to be done. Crazy. So that's why we don't want to blend those. Keep that, keep that so you don't really want to blend those two. I don't think so. Yeah, I, it would very halt, it would halt business. The cost to foreclose, I know, is pretty through expensive. Through. Yeah. While they hold the property and hire the lawyers and go through all that, fifty thousand or more. Sure. The amount of change that that would need, like. That would facilitate that, like from the appraisers just being retrained. I mean, I look at it this way, like you don't want a podiatrist doing your heart surgery, right? right, And a residential, standard residential appraiser, it's not that they're not intelligent enough. They just in practice don't do the same things that commercial appraisers do. And that would just take a total restructuring of um, not only their training, but from an economic standpoint, it makes sense to protect the market. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying it's wrong. I just, I don't know how you execute that. I think they wouldn't have many 80% LTV loans at all. So at all. And the 97, like you said, would, yeah. So that's part of it. So in your 40 years of experience, what's been, I guess, the two toughest times for you in the appraisal world? The late eighties and the mid nineties, 95, definitely. And what caused that? You think the two market collapses of the time, I was a commercial appraiser. Oh, so you really got uh, So when yeah. during the all the commercial banks closed down after yeah. in the late eighties and nineties yeah. and that was tough. Then ninety things were booming. Um, you know, in the early nineties, again the market came back, everything's going great. Then we hit ninety seven. Here we are today, still so recovering. Being in the game forty years, what's kept you in the game and where do you see the market heading from here based on your experience? Being sick kept me in the market, I think. Seriously. In the head. Yeah, sick in the yeah. head. Yeah. You, like tor- you like torturing yourself and everything exactly. else. Yeah. How much more pain can I endure right. and not jump off the bridge? A bit of a sadist. It's yeah. been a crazy market, a crazy ride. But but I love what I do now. Right. And um, because I do, a little, some, I do oversight, I deal with reviewers, I deal with appraisers in the field, I deal with lenders. So you're evolving. Yeah. I, I, I get to put all my experiences together and discuss it and with whatever party I that I'm dealing with at the so time. CVO, that's the first time I've ever heard that title, Chief Valuation Officer. How'd you get that? Ask Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so he made it up. Yeah. It's it's a common term among chief appraisers or uh, it's just a different level. Yeah. I, it, it also kind of signals changes that are, are taking place right now. You know, a lot of companies in our space aren't just limiting themselves as appraisal management companies or valuation companies. And that's because it's not all about appraisals anymore. There's other valuation types out there. And I think this is our way of not putting him into one bucket. He's not just about appraisals. He's about all types of valuations. Yeah. 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 Interesting. As you heard earlier, we leave the listeners with one thing to deposit into their brain and implement. And people really like that because the main goal, don't listen to the hour show and walk away with 50 things. No one's going to implement 50 things. In both of your gentlemen's opinion, what's one thing you would leave somebody with after hearing you guys speak or based on your experience in the business? So, you know, I think it goes back to our mantra, which is, you know, treat yourself like a customer. 
I think everybody in this industry needs to recognize that we're all each other's customers. We, we need to work collectively. We need to work together because at the end of the day, you know, we might do 20,000 transactions in a month. Every one of those is a borrower who cares about a home that they're trying to get financed, they're trying to purchase, whatever the case may be. And we need to put their, ourselves in their shoes every single time because it's not just a transaction. It's, it's a loan. It's a house. It's a person. Everybody is treated like a client rather yeah. than a number. Right. My advice... Move to California. <laughs> no. I think it'd be the I think no. I'll leave that alone. Opposite. We got too many people there. <laughs> or at least don't move to Southern California. It's <laughs> a lot of Central. Anyways, uh, if the appraisal doesn't come in, it's not end-all. There are remedies we can work, we can work or the lender can work through to help out and potentially remedy that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real point I want to make is... When that appraisal comes in and you get it, don't call the appraiser. The realtor shouldn't call the appraiser. The seller or the buyer shouldn't call the appraiser. They should contact the lender they're working with. And the appraisal management company. Who will then contact the appraisal management company. And we will go to bat with you any way we can to provide the most reliable report available. The most Follow the hierarchy, if you will. Correct. Don't, in place. don't call the appraiser because there's, first off, appraisal independence rules that may come into play. And the appraiser is going to be less open-minded if we go through the normal process. Right. So you're pushing somebody I mean, opposed if to we don't go you know, massaging it through. Yeah. 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 Well, I really appreciate your gentleman's knowledge, wisdom. We'll get all you guys' information and whatnot. And, you know, look, you heard what I said earlier. You know, Nationwide's been nothing but excellent to me for, you know, my entire career. And, you know, now, like I said, I'm on the hard money investment side. And I look forward to continuing that relationship and hopefully continuing our dialogue, how we can make the appraisal process more consumer-friendly more service provider, educational, if you will, and uh, look forward to growing with you guys. So thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.